Merciful Father, Lord, once again, we thank you for your love and mercy. And Lord, we thank you for this beautiful day that you've given us, this gift of life, this opportunity to come before you and worship. And Lord, we thank you for the freedom and liberty to do so. And Lord, we just ask you to please bless our gathering, bless our time together. Send your Holy Spirit to fill this room with your light and your truth. Draw us unto you. Help us to get to know you better. Lord, we ask this all in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Two minutes past three on the morning of August 17th, 1999, a huge earthquake hit the nation of Turkey. It was a colossal tragedy. Official death toll placed the numbers of dead between 15 and 18,000. Some say as many as 45,000 died. One earthquake. There was tales of sadness and heartbreak everywhere. In fact, it it wasn't just hit people in Turkey. There was a family there from Atlanta, Georgia, that was there visiting family at that time. And they lost four of their young children, ages six, five, two, and seven months. They also lost their paternal grandfather. Across the Sea of Mamara from Istanbul is the resort city of Yalova. The wealthiest and most prominent man in that city before the earthquake was a building contractor. Yet after the earthquake, he was no longer regarded as a pillar of the community, but actually as a pariah. Recovery experts sifting through the ruins of the earthquake found that the concrete used in the construction of many of the buildings would crumble in their hands. It was also discovered that the reinforcing rods in many of the buildings were thinner and weaker than what the building codes required. Builders, our friends included, cut corners. There was no real inspection system in place there, and so they were free to flout the building codes, to do as they pleased, to save money, but imperiling lives. Nobody living in those buildings had any idea that they weren't up to code. The buildings looked okay on the outside and even on the inside. It was when the ground shook that it was revealed that the buildings weren't built to withstand pressure. Officials say that many lives would have been saved if they'd have just been built to code. I want to tell you tonight, and I've told you every night, that our planet's headed for a similar calamity. One day, this earth will be shaken. Not by this type of earthquake. It will be shaken by the mark of the beast. And when that happens, we're going to really see how well our spiritual houses are built. We're going to see how strong our foundations really are. You see, the mark of the beast represents the culmination of the age-old battle between good and evil. We've talked about it a lot in this series, haven't we? It began long ago with rebellion in heaven, when Satan coveted the place of Christ himself. Remember when he said in his heart, I will be like the Most High. He wanted to sit on the throne of God. He wanted to receive worship. And when the drama of the ages is brought to a close, it will be brought to a close over an issue which reveals 
who we, each one of us, have chosen to worship. Which side have you chosen? As I've mentioned several nights, when Jesus returns, there'll be two classes of people. Amen? One will have made the necessary preparation to meet Jesus and will have built their spiritual houses on a foundation of rock. The other will have built on the sand. And when the final storms come, their spiritual houses will not be able to stand, those that have built on the sand. These two groups are described in the Bible as those who are on God's right and on God's left. They're described as the wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goats. Revelation describes them as those who have received the seal of the living God and those who have received the mark of the beast. Two classes. Now some people, a lot of people think that the mark of the beast is some strange tattoo of 666 on the forehead. People wonder if the mark of the beast is some sort of identification number issued by some mastermind who's going to take over the world. You've heard that, right? When I was in high school, I went to a church with a girl that I was dating. It was New Year's Eve, and they showed one of the most horrible movies I've ever seen in my life. I still think about it. I'm in my 50s. And it had this right here. Well, friends, I'm here to tell you that I didn't know my Bible then, so I, I didn't know. We're going to learn tonight that's not it. Other people are concerned about barcodes. I promise you the scanning barcode that we do is not the mark of the beast. I promise you. But people are worried about that, right? They're scanning my stuff in the grocery store. They're tracking me. They've heard that Revelation 13 talks about the number of the beast. And it says those who don't accept the mark of the beast will not be able to buy or sell. The Bible does say that. So many people ask, is that mark of the beast a barcode on the label of a can? Well, friends, I'm here to tell you, before you ask what is the mark of the beast, we ought to be clear on a more basic question. Who is the beast? before we figure out what its mark is. Amen? The Bible tells us that no scripture is of any private interpretation. That means the Bible interprets itself. We can find the answers within the Bible. My friends, the mark of the beast isn't something that the Lord would leave you to guess about. The book of Revelation clearly unfolds who the beast is. It identifies the mark of the beast and also how to avoid receiving it. The Bible answers our questions. Whoever this beast is and whatever the mark is, do you agree with me that a careful study of the Bible should give us the answer? Amen. In fact, that's the only way. That's the only way we're going to get an identification that fits every one of the specific details, not just the sensational ones. Not just the Hollywood versions. There's our theme, right? You wonder if I was going to skip that one, didn't you? If it's in the Bible, I believe it. If it disagrees with the Bible, it's not for me. My friends, the Bible has the answer to the mark of the beast. Specifically, the book of Revelation has answers. 
If we're going to find the answers to the mark of the beast, it must be found within the Bible. The book of Revelation clearly reveals how to identify the beast. Now, who's this a revelation of? Remember? The revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, my friends, this is going to be a little earth-shattering. It's not the revelation of the mark of the beast. The theme of the book is not the mark of the beast, even though a lot of the Christian world wants it to be. They get fixated on when, in fact, the theme of the book is Jesus Christ. When we open the book of Revelation, we are studying who Jesus Christ is. Now, we're also going to learn who the beast is and the enemy is. The book of Revelation does two things. It reveals Jesus' truth and will expose Satan's deceptions. Revelation talks about a struggle, talks about a battle, a universal conflict between good and evil. And in light of this final struggle between Christ and Satan, we're going to see that the struggle is over worship. True worship and false worship. That's the core of this battle. The beast has worshipers. And Jesus has worshipers. Amen? And Revelation tells us that the beast's worshipers are marked. Also tells us that Jesus' worshipers are sealed with the sign of God. Sealed with God's sign. So the final crisis is going to center around the beast's mark and God's seal. The beast's mark and God's seal. Let's go to Revelation chapter 13. Page 1183. Revelation chapter 13 verse 1. Then I stood on the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. So the book of Revelation describes this dreadful beast, which we see comes up out of the sea. It talks about this beast as a mighty power. Now, we need to understand what Bible prophecy symbols mean in order to understand and interpret the prophecies. Amen? Once again, the Bible will do that for us. Now turn to Revelation 17. Revelation chapter 17, verse 15. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So what are the waters? Peoples, populated area. The waters represent people in Bible prophecy. According to the Bible, it's not according to me. We just read it in the Bible. When the beast comes up out of the sea, that means it's going to come up out of a populated area of the earth. It comes up among people areas, among nations. Now the Bible talks about this beast in Revelation 13 as being like four beasts. It says it's like a lion, a bear, a leopard, and a dragon, or a terrible beast. Now what do beasts represent in Bible prophecy? Let's go to Daniel chapter 7. 
Page 865. Daniel chapter 7, verse 23. Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth. So what does this beast represent? A kingdom or a political power. According to the Bible, a beast represents a political power. Now, my friends, many people are misled. They think that this beast is some evil person. They think that it describes it as this evil dictator that's going to come up, this one single person. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says it's a power. It's a political power. People deceive people are thinking it's this universal dictator or some evil mastermind who's got this dastardly plan who's going to take over the world all by himself. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that these four beasts are four kingdoms. The beast represents a political or religious power. According to the Bible, it does not represent a single person. Everybody clear? Okay. These powers can be political, or they can be religious, or a combination, as we're going to see shortly. The Bible describes this beast in Revelation 13. It goes on in verse 2. Revelation 13, verse 2. Page 1183. It says, The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. So whoever this beast power is, it gets its authority from someone else, right? From the dragon. So it gets its seat of government or its, its power over the world from a dragon-like beast. Now remember back in our study of Daniel chapter 7, we saw that the Bible talked about the lion, and it said the lion, the king of the beast, represented which kingdom? Babylon. It also talked about a bear representing... Medo-Persia. Greece was the leopard. White, the wing-like leopard for speed. And finally, the terrible beast, the dragon-like beast, Rome. Rome. Now remember, in Bible prophecy, God uses animals to describe nations and governments. Let's go to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, verse 4. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Who was the child that was about to be born that would rule over the world? Jesus, amen. Notice the capital C in your Bibles? Jesus Christ. Now in the Bible, the dragon represents Satan. Right? Right? Amen? Everybody following? In Revelation chapter 12, we see that Satan works through a pagan Rome to destroy Jesus. We talked about that. So Satan's going to work with pagan Rome to try to destroy Jesus. In fact, Mary and Joseph fled to Egypt because of a Roman official, Herod, who passed a decree that all male children will be killed. He was trying to wipe out the Messiah. He didn't know who the Messiah was. He said, if I kill all the newborn males, I'm bound to get lucky. I see you shaking your heads. That's what evil does. 
This Roman ruler attempted to do away with Jesus. Also, it was a Roman governor, Pilate, who sentenced Christ to death and ordered his crucifixion. Pagan Rome. A Roman emblem sealed Jesus' tomb, and Roman soldiers guarded it. My friends, we're clear that this was the power, right? Revelation 13, we see that the dragon, pagan Rome, would give this new power the seat of his government. So who did pagan Rome give its power and throne and great authority to? We see in Revelation 13, it's going to transfer its power over to another power. Well, there's six identifying characteristics that I want to go through so we can identify this power, this political religious system that's described in Revelation chapter 13. The first one helps us identify who this power is. It's a power that receives its seat of its government or authority from ancient pagan Rome. So we know that this power is going to get its power transferred to it from imperial Rome. So let's go to one of the most learned professors of all Roman history. Let's see if history lines up with Bible prophecy. His name is Professor LaBianca, and he taught history for many years at the University of Rome. They should know Roman history, amen? And he made this observation. To the succession of the Caesars came the succession of the pontiffs in Rome. What is what the pontiff is? Pope. The church leadership. He continues, when Constantine left Rome, he gave his seat to the pontiff. So when the imperial emperor left the seat of his government, he turned it over to the church, to the Catholic church. What did the dragon give him? His seat, his power, and great authority. The Bible tells us. You see, At this time, the Roman Empire is falling apart. The barbarian hordes are attacking it from the north. It's crumbling. And Constantine recognized that he's going to soon lose his whole empire if he doesn't do something. He's going to get overthrown by these Germanic tribes that are coming in from the north. Europe was, in fact, being carved up by these invading barbarian armies. They're They're conquering as much as they can, and they're divvying up the spoils. Constantine saw this. He says, man, this is being divided. So Constantine had to flee Rome. He had to get out before the barbarians came and killed him. And he fled to Turkey. And there he established Constantinople as the new headquarters and his capital city. Rather than leaving Rome without a visible leader, though, he gave the seat of his government authority over to the Pope of Rome, the pontiff, the head of the church. So he transferred his civil power over to the church. So up until then, the pontiff had been just a religious leader. Now he's got church power, ecclesiastical power, and now he's got civil power. Let's look at Stanley's history, page 40. Quote, the popes filled the the place of the vacant emperors of Rome, inheriting their power, prestige, and titles from paganism. The papacy is but the ghost of the deceased Roman Empire sitting crowned upon its grave. You see, my friends, the beast is not a person. It's a religious political system. 
we're going to look at the clear teachings of the Bible. And the Bible makes the identification of this beast power plain. And history verifies it. Now, I want to be clear. In our lecture series, it is not my intention, it's not our desire to offend or hurt any individual or any group. It's not what we're here about. We're here to study the Bible. Facts. History. Prophecy. My friends, there are many fine people in the Roman church who love Jesus. Amen? They're committed Christians. You see, this prophecy is not talking about individuals. It's talking about a system. A system of power. A system that has abused its power. The beast is not a person. The beast of Revelation 13 describes a religious political system that grew up out of Rome. It rose out of Rome. And as it grew in power, it would gradually compromise the truth of God's word. Gradually. Traditions would begin to slip into the Christian church. And later, even Protestant churches would accept these same traditions. These churches who supposedly were protesting against those traditions adopted many of them. Here's a second characteristic in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. It says, all who dwell on the earth will worship him. That's number two. Worldwide. So this is going to be a big power, a big church. Worldwide religious system. The third characteristic in Revelation 13, verse 5 says, and he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. Now, my friends, most people, when they think of blasphemy, they think of somebody cursing God. Remember, I mentioned it a couple weeks ago. Openly cursing God or somebody denying the existence of God. That's what we think about when we think about blasphemy. But the Bible defines blasphemy quite differently. In Scripture, blasphemy occurs when an individual declares that he is equal with God or has the privileges of God. That's the Bible definition of blasphemy. Let's look and see what the Bible actually says, right? Jesus himself was accused of blasphemy. Turn to John chapter 10. Page 1038. John chapter 10, verse 33. The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you be and a man, being a man, make yourself God. Why did they want to stone Jesus? Because he claimed to be God. Was Jesus God? Absolutely. Amen. Saul, he was not a blasphemer. Because his claim to be equal with the Father was true. He wasn't claiming something falsely. Well, there's a simple question. Does this beast power, does the Roman church ever make that claim? Does it ever claim to be, claim the power or privilege of God? Let's look at some of their own writings. Here's some, the encyclical letters directly from the papacy of Leo Thirteenth. Quote, we hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. The history of the Roman church speaks for itself. This is not a secret 
statement. You can Google it. How about another aspect of blasphemy? Turn to Mark chapter 2. Page 969. Mark chapter 2, verse 7. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Why did they accuse Jesus of being a blasphemer here? Because he claimed to forgive sins. In fact, this is one of those instances when the Pharisees actually agreed with the Bible. Right? They said only God can forgive sins. They actually had the Bible right that time, didn't they? But, (laughs) could Jesus forgive sins? Absolutely. Why could he forgive sins? Because he had the privilege and prerogatives of God. He is God. My friends, they did not accept Jesus as Messiah. That didn't make him not Messiah. (laughs) There's a book called Dignity and Duties of the Priests. Volume 12, page 2. It's written by Alphonsus Licori. Each priest who enters the priesthood reads this book to understand his duties. Dignity and duties of the priest. God himself is obliged to abide by the judgment of his priest and either not to pardon or to pardon. According as they refuse or give absolution, the sentence of the priest precedes and God subscribes to it. Now read that very carefully. This doctrine places man in front of God in the act of judgment, and in the act of forgiveness. The church itself says that the priest is ahead of God. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Page 1140. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there is how many gods? One God, one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ, Jesus. Who's the only priest? Jesus. Jesus is our only Savior. He is our only Redeemer. Revelation is leading us back to Jesus, not a man-made system filled with human traditions. So the third identifying characteristic is claims equality with God. The fourth characteristic is also found in Revelation 13, this time verse 7. It was granted to make him, or I'm granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. This power is going to lead to a union of church and state. Religious power and secular power are going to come together. My friends, I ask you a simple question Why does a church need an army? A secular army. Force. Coercion. And this happened during the Dark Ages. Church and state. Bible-believing Christians would be condemned to death simply because they believed in the Bible. Even simpler than that, because they possessed a Bible. It was illegal to even have a Bible. Now, why would it be illegal to have a Bible? 
because they didn't want you to know what was in the Bible. I know I, many people, and my friends, I'm not trying to make light of this, they think it's the dark ages because of all the death. My friends, that was dark. 50 to 80 million people. But that's not why it's called the dark ages. It's called the dark ages because they nearly snuffed out the light of the word. Darkness from God's truth. Does history bear this out? Did church and state unite under Rome and persecute those who did not go along? Absolutely. The church itself admits that. The fourth characteristic is it'll be a persecuting power. The Bible is very, very plain. You see this issue that God is dealing with, true worship. God is leading us back to Christ. He's leading us back to his word. He's leading us to exalt Jesus in our lives in ways that so many haven't understood. Remember what we read earlier in Revelation 13, 5, and he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Now what's this all about? Authority. Authority. Now some have said that mathematics is an exact science. Amen? Well, let's go through a couple of mathematical proofs to identify this beast power. What about that 42 months the Bible talks about? Remember in our lessons about prophecy, one prophetic day equals one literal year. Remember we studied it? Somebody asked a question about it. So we've spent a lot of time on this. Those come from Ezekiel 4.6 and Numbers 14.34. So one prophetic day equals a literal year. So if we're talking about 42 months, there's 30 days in one prophetic month. Times 42 prophetic months equals 1,260 prophetic days or literal years. 1,260 years. 1,260 years. So the prophecy declares that this power is going to exist for 1,260 years and then it's going to suffer a deadly wound. The pagan Roman Empire gradually fell apart from AD 356 to about AD 476. After AD 476, in exactly AD 538, the last of the tribes battling against papal Rome were defeated. 538. The prophecy of the 1,260 years begins in 538. When the Roman Emperor Justinian gave the people of Rome religious and civil authority. Turned it over. The papacy would then dominate Europe for 1,260 years and then receive a deadly wound. So that brings us to the year 1798. Well, what happened in 1798? Anybody remember who the great political leader was in 1798 in Europe? I showed him on a couple of slide decks. Napoleon. Napoleon looked south, and he felt challenged by the Pope of Rome. So he sent his general, Berthier, to Rome to take the Pope captive. Berthier entered Rome in 1798, exactly as prophecy predicted. 1,260 years. He took the Pope captive, 
and he brought him back to France. And in fact, the Pope died in captivity in France. So what does history tell us about these remarkable events? Let's look in church history, page 24. The murder of a Frenchman in Rome in 1798 gave the French an excuse for occupying the eternal city and putting an end to the papal temporal power. The aged pontiff himself was carried off into exile to Valence. The enemies of the church rejoiced. The last pope, they declared, had resigned. As prophecy accurately predicted, the papacy would receive a deadly wound when the pope died in captivity in 1798, exactly as the Bible predicted. What does the Bible tell us in Revelation 13, 3? And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded. And his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. The Bible says that this beast power would reign for 1,260 years, beginning in 538, and it ended in 1798. And we've seen that indeed it did. You can look at any secular history book. In 1798, it suffered that deadly wound. Prophecy was fulfilled precisely. The Bible also tells us though, that sometime in the future, this deadly wound would be healed. And my friends, history and even current events indicate that Rome is once again a prominent in world politics. Amen? Is Rome, is the Roman church prominent in world politics? Absolutely. Entire nations, leaders of nations, consult with the papacy. So number five, reigns for 1,260 years. The Bible goes on in Revelation chapter 13, this time in verse 18. Quote, here's wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man. His number is 666. How many have heard this one? Come on. Now my friends, in the Bible, numbers always have significance. The number seven always indicates perfection, while the number six, on the other hand, indicates apostasy or rebellion. Now, we must not make the mistake of thinking that the mark of the beast is 666. I actually had a friend that I grew up with whose address was 666, and they freaked out. They literally had their addresses changed to 668. I live on the same street today. You can drive by the house today. It's a true story. We had a former pastor from this church who went to get his license plate. He told this story in one of these seminars. Went to get his license plate and it was going to come out with 666. And the lady selling there was, was adamant that she wasn't going to give it to him because she found out he was a pastor. You don't want that. <laughs> she didn't even know. That's what people think, right? That's what they're told. One of the official titles of the papacy is Vicarious Philae Dei, or Vicar of the Son of God. Now let me explain this title a little bit to you. The title Vicarious Philae Dei is in Latin. It means Vicar, the Son of God, or Vice God on Earth. That's the title of the pontiff. Remember the scripture says, Here's wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast. And it is the number of a man. And his number is 666. So the number has to be linked to the head of this organization as part of his official title. 
An official title is Vicarious Philae Dei. So if it's a Roman power, wouldn't we need to use Roman numerals to discover its meaning? In fact, Roman numerals will give you a numerical calculation for these letters. In Roman numerals, you have the value of each letter of the alphabet in the name is shown here. How many studied Roman numerals in school? I'm looking at some of the, if there's younger people in here. Do they even teach that anymore? That's something I want to find out. I was great at those. So if you look at them and if you studied them, you'll see that this is, I'm not making this up. It adds up to 666, exactly to 666. So this power is going to grow out of pagan Rome. It's going to be a worldwide religious power. It's going to claim equality of God with God. It will be a persecuting power. It reigns for 1,260 years, and the number of his name will be 666. My friends, its leaders will claim equality with God. And remember, we saw the quotes. They claim that of their priests. We know the church persecuted. We know the 1,260 years because we know history. Remember, the wound would be healed. This prophecy has been fulfilled. The exact title of this power is 666. Well, then the Bible continues in Revelation chapter 13, this time in verse 16. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So, of course, this leads to a question, right? What is the mark of the beast? How do you describe it? Whatever the mark of the beast is, it has to be opposite of God's sign. Amen? Remember? They're in opposition of each other. Two sides, distinct sides. So we're talking about an organization, a power that arises, which has a mark or a sign of its authority. That's the opposite of God's sign. So to understand the mark of the beast, we must first understand God's sign or his seal or mark. We need to study what his mark is, what his sign is. My friends, these issues that we're studying are of supreme importance. They have to do with the final battle between good and evil, as we've talked about. It's like a global crisis of monumental proportions. Turn to Revelation chapter 7, page 1179. Revelation chapter 7, verse 2. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. So on one hand, we have the mark of the beast, right? We've been talking about it. And on the other hand, we have the seal of the living God. Revelation 7 continues, And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. I want you to notice that the mark of the beast could be received in the forehead or in the hands, according to the Bible. But God's people only received his seal where? 
and a foreheads. What's the difference? See, the mark of the beast in the forehead indicates that people have been deceived to choose the beast's way. They've been fooled. They've been deceived. They have accepted falsehoods rather than the truth. But the mark of the beast in the hand indicates that they've been forced or coerced to go along against their own will. Even if they don't believe it, they've been physically forced. They've yielded to the pressure. Coercion. Well, that's right away is a distinguishing factor, amen? Because we know by studying our Bible that God never uses force. Amen? It's God of love. So God's people only can receive his seal in their minds because he won't force it on them. They have to accept his sign freely. What does the Bible mean when it talks about a sign or a seal? Turn to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, verse 11. Page 1088. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness. So in the Bible, a sign or a seal or a mark is the same thing. They mean the same thing. Where's God's seal found? It's found in God's legal document. What's his legal document? Ten Commandments. It's where you're going to find a seal. Turn to Isaiah chapter 8, page 661. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 16. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. So what is God's seal? What is God's sign? What is his mark? Go to Ezekiel chapter 20. Page 819. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 12. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbath to be a sign between them and me, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. What's this sign? Sabbath. So God's sign of loyalty is the seventh-day Sabbath, which exalts God as creator of heaven and earth. Amen? Remember, we, decide, we figured out from the Bible, we studied the Bible, that the Sabbath is a memorial, right, to his creative power. It's a memorial to his creation. So the Sabbath is God's sign, his seal, or his mark of his authority. The Sabbath symbolizes worship of the God who created heavens and the earth. It reveals our allegiance to the creator. 666 symbolizes man's rebellion and changing God's law, which is his sign, seal, or mark of his authority. A royal seal contains three things. Name, title, and territory. Ever see the seal of the President of the United States? What does it have? It has his name. It has his title, which is president. Of what? The United States, territory. Well, my friends, God has a seal. And God's seal contains those three things that make any legal document legal. And you'll find that in Exodus chapter 20. 
Turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, page 71. The fourth commandment says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And then watch this. For in six days the Lord, that is his name, made, which means he's, his title's creator, the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, which is his territory, and rested the seventh day. So it has his name, has his title, and it has the territory that he has authority over. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Amen? You see, in the heart of God's law, God's Sabbath commandment authenticates the entire Ten Commandments. When the commandments say, thou shalt not kill, you could say, why not? Who says I can't kill? It says, thou shalt not steal. You say, what do you mean I can't steal? Who says that? The Lord. That's his name. Creator is his title. Heaven and, and earth and sea and all that in them is his territory. It's his domain. It's what he has authority over. In fact, the Sabbath commandment contains all three. It seals the law and it makes this binding to all of us. In fact, if you look at all ten commandments, it's the only one that contains all three. It's the only one that contains God's seal. That's why God told us in Ezekiel 20, Hallow my Sabbath, and they will be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. You see, the Sabbath is God's sign of loyalty or faithfulness to the Creator. The Sabbath is God's mark. It's His symbol so that we know He is God. Right? It's a symbol to creation, to His creative power. He is the creator, and that's why he is due worship. His domain is heaven and earth, the sea and the fountain of waters. The central issue regarding the mark of the beast is worship. It's always worship. The issues are true worship on one hand and false worship on the other. You see, God will have a group of people who will worship him as creator and Lord by keeping all of his commandments. If the Sabbath is a sign of worshiping the Creator, what is the beast's sign? What's his mark? Well, let's ask the Catholic Church. What does the Church of Rome claim as the sign of its authority? My friends, it's only fair to ask them, right? Look at the Catholic record, September 1st, 1923. Quote, Sunday is our mark of authority. The church is above the Bible. And this transference of Sabbath observance is proof of that fact. They said, we change the law because we can. Because we're above God. My friends, you can discover these quotes yourself. I urge you to play the CD. Please Google them. C.F. Thomas wrote, in a letter on October 28, 1895, of course the church claims that the change was her act. And the act is a mark of her ecclesiastical power and authority in religious matters. It's her mark. Speaking in Vienna, Austria, to a large gathering of people, Pope Benedict XVI said in Latin, sine dominico non possumus, without Sunday, we cannot live. 
What's the significance of Sunday in the Bible? The first day of the week. My friends, God's mark is the Sabbath. The Roman church mark is Sunday. In fact, the church claims itself that that's its mark, is the authority to worship on the first day of the week. I want you to read a statement from the rectory at St. Catherine's Church. Perhaps the boldest thing, the most revolutionary change the church ever did, happened in the first century. The holy day of the Sabbath was changed from Saturday to Sunday, not from any directions noted in the Scriptures. Notice they openly say they don't have authority from the Scriptures, from the Bible. Continues, but from the church's sense of its own power, people who think that the Scriptures should be the sole authority should logically become Seventh-day Adventists and keep Saturday holy. My friends, this is from a Catholic church. This is not a Seventh-day Adventist writing. In fact, it's in the Rome's Challenge booklet I gave you a week ago, a week and a half ago, that exact quote. And my friends, I agree with them. Bible-believing Christians ought to keep the Sabbath holy because the Bible says so, not because I say so. This Catholic scholar says, if you're going to follow the Bible, then you ought to actually follow what the Bible says. And the Bible doesn't say anything about keeping the first day of the week holy. Instead, the Bible speaks of the seventh-day Sabbath. Now, my friends, the question might be asked, and I want to be very plain tonight. What about Bible-believing Christians who love Jesus, but they worship on the first day of the week? Now, I had this question, remember? I answered that question earlier. But now the next logical question is, if they're worshiping on the first day of the week, Dan, do they have the mark of the beast? No, they do not. Back to Revelation chapter 13. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. Now, we wonder how this could happen. We wonder, how could all of these people get deceived? But we see God's eternal sign has been replaced, hasn't it, by tradition. The law of God has been usurped by the teachings of a church. God's will has been rejected, and man's will has been put in its place. Man has admitted to saying so. Turn to Matthew chapter 15, page 950. Matthew chapter 15, verse 9. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus said they pretend to worship me, but they don't worship what I've told them to do. They don't follow my word. How could it be, and this is a logical question, I know some of you have it, how could it be wrong when so many people are doing it? My friends, only Jesus is our example, amen? How, and, but we ask ourselves, how could all them people be wrong? Well, let me ask you this. How many people were supporting Jesus at the cross? Very few. How could have many, so many been wrong? 
Same question, right? My friends, the crowd, the majority is rarely right. In fact, I urge you to be very cautious when the vast majority are moving in one direction. You might want to look back the other way. I want you to think about this. A good counterfeit always closely resembles the truth, the real. When they teach tellers to spot counterfeit money, what do they study? People think they study counterfeit money. They don't study counterfeit money at all. They study the real money. They spend hours studying what the real money looks like. If I tried to pass a counterfeit $3 bill on you, how far is that going? But if I got a pretty good $20 bill, we spend $20 bills all day long, don't we? A counterfeit must closely resemble the original to fool people. The counterfeit itself isn't something that is harmless in and of itself, my friends. Worshiping God is good, amen? But rejecting God, like Eve did in the garden, and replacing it with a substitute, isn't consistent with the love of God. The wise man wrote Solomon in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12. He said, there is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Man's ways are never better than God's ways. You see, my friends, the mark of the beast is very simple. When we accept a change in God's high moral law, and we follow what the beast says, rather than surrendering our hearts to God, we receive the sign or the mark of the nation's authority in our lives. Who we accede to is who has authority over us. The Bible Sabbath sees human beings coming into communion with God. The Bible Sabbath enables us to remember who God is and to worship him in truth. The counterfeit Sabbath sees people choosing to do their own will and putting that above the will of God. Now you might think, well, Dan, it's just a day. How important can it be? It's just a day. I want to impress upon you that it's not about the day. I agree with you, it's just a day. What's important is what that day represents. What that day represents. Let me give you a little example. Maybe I can give you a little parallel. Imagine someone standing on a street corner. They reach into their bag and they take out a piece of white cloth. They throw it on the ground in front of everybody, and they start stomping on it. Would you be offended by that? Of course not. It's just a piece of cloth. They're just stepping on a white piece of cloth. It's no big deal. Then the person takes out another cloth. This time it's a red cloth. Tosses it on the ground and stamps on that one. Now, pretty soon now you're starting to think, this person's strange. But are you offended? No, it's just cloth that they're standing on. Then they throw out a blue cloth, throw it on the ground. Same treatment. Nobody's upset. 
Because there's nothing offensive about somebody stomping on a blue cloth. But then the next day, that same person comes back with that cloth. Except this time, he's had the cloth cleaned. He's had it sewn. And now the red and white material happened to be arranged in 13 horizontal stripes. Then there's a patch of blue up in the corner. And it happens to have 50 white stars in the blue patch. Now our friend takes this cloth, throws it on the ground, and starts stomping on it. Does anybody notice that? Oh, yeah. In a heartbeat. But what is fascinating, because you just told me that it doesn't matter. It's just a cloth. But is it actually the case? Is it just a cloth? Is it just a cloth? Uh, Trick question. Sure it is. Yes and no. It is a cloth. But now that cloth represents something. It's the standard of a great nation. And it stands for something we hold dear. Amen? My friends, when it comes to the seventh-day Sabbath, it's not about the day. It's about what it represents. It represents the God who made us. That's why in Isaiah chapter 58, verse 13, when speaking of the Sabbath, God said, Stop trampling on my holy day. Get your foot off my Sabbath. Now, isn't that interesting? We say, oh, it's just a day. God says, it's not just a day to me. God says it means something to me. So then you come back and you say, well, Dan, isn't the most important thing simply that God knows I love him? Yes, that's very important. In fact, that's the most important thing. Which is why Jesus himself helped us understand what love is. Turn me to John chapter 14. I suspect that you will see this scripture in more lectures than any other. Jesus himself, John chapter 14, verse 15, page 1043. If you love me, keep my commandments. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. As I've said before, we don't keep the commandments So he will love us. He always loves us. We keep his commandments because he loves us. And because we love him. It's an outpouring. It's a demonstration of that love. If you haven't figured it out yet, my friends, I'm going to be as plain as can be. What is the mark of the beast? Forced Sunday worship. Forced Mandated by civil law, enforced by the second beast. Forced law, legislated by civil authority, and enforced by secular and religious power. So here's the question. A question for you, a quiz. You've been paying attention, we're getting ready to wrap up. Who has the mark of the beast today? Boy, I see some really scared looks. I don't want to answer that. My friends, nobody does. Nobody. Now we know what the mark is. 
But nobody will receive the mark until this message goes to the whole world. And then the mark is enforced by law, by force. Remember, people are forced to take the mark of the beast. I say, well, wait a minute, Dan. Could a law really be passed like this? Well, in fact, for many years, there have been influential voices stating their agreement with these kinds of laws. As far back as 1998, who remembers Pope John Paul II? Very famous, popular pope. He wrote a 104-page apostolic letter in which he appealed to Christians all around the world. He appealed to pastors and church leaders to embrace Sunday as a Sabbath. His words, not mine. He said in this letter, Christians will naturally strive to ensure civil legislation respects their duty to keep Sunday holy. He's saying, hey, let's pass some laws to protect the sanctity of the first day. Let's pass some laws to keep Sunday holy. My friends, is there any doubt that we're headed in that direction? My friends, I'm here to tell you, it will come under the guise of something sounding really good. Perhaps it'll be in response to a terrible tragedy. We've heard those, right? Or simply as the result of the continuing moral decay of society. We've already heard the terms family day, a day of rest to reconnect with our families. My friends, I'm here to tell you, many people are not going to just accept it. They're going to beg for it. They're going to clamor for it. They're going to demand it. Friends, it's not a barcode. It's not a chip. The Bible teaches there are many Christians who love Jesus and who do not understand the central issues that we've been talking about in this series, but they're faithful Christians. Amen? They're committed to their Lord, and in their hearts they want to serve Christ, but they don't fully understand that there's a church system that has changed God's law from Sabbath to Sunday. They don't understand that this church system claims the mark of its authority to place tradition above the Bible. But in love, we're told in God's word, before Jesus returns, he's going to make these issues clear to mankind. Before the coming of Jesus, every honest-hearted man and woman will have an opportunity to understand. The final issue of loyalty will center around worship. Now, my friends, many of you are facing a decision. A decision between truth or tradition. You're facing the same decision that many others have faced in their journey with Jesus. These decisions, these issues are about worship. They're about eternity. Truth was tainted. An error has come into church. There is something called God's mark, God's seal, God's sign, and it's the Sabbath. And there's a mark of another power, the first day of the week, that claims tradition above Scripture. My friends, God is calling us from the Roman power. God is calling us back to the Bible. God is calling each one of us to take a stand. He's calling us to follow his truth. In every age, God has called men and women to take a stand. Amen? You see, truth wasn't popular 
in the days of Noah. Truth wasn't popular in the days of Daniel, nor in the days of Jesus, or in the days of the apostles. It wasn't easy to stand for truth in the days of the reformers. They got burned at the stake. But God's faithful take a stand. God's faithful have taken a stand, and they will take a stand. In the last days, God invites his people to take a stand. He's calling each one of us to take a stand. And if you know what God wants you to do, and you hesitate because it's unpopular, how can you expect to influence your family and friends for God's truth? If you are weak and you compromise, you believe it, but you don't do it, why should they? My friends, God is inviting us to take a stand. Jesus is inviting us to take a stand. The Holy Spirit is inviting us to take a stand. Will you say to Jesus right now, Lord, I see the issues. Tradition on one side, the Bible on the other. The teaching of men on one side. The teaching of God's word on the other. Christ on one side, the popular religious leaders on the other. Will you say to Jesus, I see the issue. It's more than a matter of days. It's a matter of masters. Who will be your master? My friends, I hear the creator God calling the entire universe, inviting us to take a stand. Just now, choose Jesus. Will you make that decision? If you will, please stand with me as we pray. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you once again for this beautiful day. And Lord, we thank you for the gift of the Sabbath, a memorial of your creative power and your ability to recreate our fallen characters. And Lord, we come before you tonight humbly, and we just ask you to continue to speak to our hearts and draw us into your loving arms. Lord, some of us may have wandered away from you. Some may have never found you yet. But Lord, you're calling us all. The fact that we're here acknowledges that we have heard your call, that we've heard your pleading, and that we're searching. And Lord, we know that the deception will continue to grow in the last days. We know that the moral decay in the world is increasing, that disaster is all about us. We know force is coming down upon your people. And so, Lord, we just ask you to continue to pour out your truths. Help us to draw near to you. Help us to know your character. Give us the strength to stand in the face of persecution and deception. Lord, we thank you for this glorious seal, this mark that you've given us of your Sabbath. And we ask you to please help us to resist the mark of the beast. Continue to speak to our hearts and draw us into your Bible so that we can identify the deception. And most of all, Lord, so that we can identify your love and your grace. Lord, I ask you to please be with these dear souls tonight. Protect them, keep them safe. Give them traveling mercies as they return to their homes. Protect them with their families. Bring them back tomorrow night to continue to open your truths, to continue to learn more about you and more about salvation. Lord, we ask this all in your son Jesus' name. Amen. I want to thank you all.